0: Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today we're speaking with the creators of Come From Away, the Tony Award-winning Broadway musical, which is now a movie coming to you from Apple Original Films. It is set in the week following the September 11th terror attacks, and it tells the true story of what transpired when 38 passenger airplanes were forced to land unexpectedly in the very small town of Gander, Newfoundland, when the U.S. unexpectedly closed its airspace on the morning of September 11th. The characters in the musical are based on the real residents of Gander, as well as some of the 7,000 passengers on those planes who were stranded in Gander and some of the surrounding towns for five days before they could finally get back home to the United States. The musical premiered on Broadway in 2017 and was nominated for seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Book, and Score, and one of our guests today, Christopher Ashley, won the Tony Award for Best Direction of a Play. Come From Away is the latest Broadway show to get a streaming release, this time on Apple TV+, Plus in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. It just premiered last week, so you can watch it right now. Or better yet, you can watch it right after you enjoy this excellent conversation with the writers of the book, music and lyrics, David Hine and Irene Sackhoff, and the director of both the Broadway show and the film, Christopher Ashley. On
1: the northeast tip of North America is a town called Gander. September 11th, 2001. Over 200 planes getting diverted. Even with all the hotels in town, we've got no room. With thousands of passengers arriving at any minute, the town is asking for help with, well, anything you can do. We barely know where we are. Just freaking out, I wish I was home. Thank you for shopping at Walmart. Would you like to come back to my house for a shower? Hello? Yes, it's me. Dad, I'm okay. We honor what was lost, but we also commemorate. What we found.
0: Christopher, David, Irene, uh, welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast. It's a real pleasure to meet you. I'm a, a huge fan of the show. Uh, I got to see the Broadway production shortly after you opened, uh, and was a huge fan of it. And uh, and really came away from the theater just having had such a just a, a, a wonderful. Uh, evening. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, I, I have some questions about the genesis of the show and how it started. Um, I, I think I remember reading about the Plain People and Gander, maybe on the first or second anniversary of 9-11. I, I, my recollection was there, there was an article in the, in the New York Times about what had happened on the first or second anniversary. And I remember reading the article thinking, this would make an amazing movie. Uh, but of course I, you know, I, it never occurred to me, you know, uh, a theatrical musical. So can you talk a little bit about kind of how the, how this, pro- the project came together and it feels so inevitable now that of course it's a perfect theatrical musical, but that may not have been the obvious thing to do with this very powerful story from the beginning. So please tell us a little bit about how the project came together.
2: I think it starts a little bit. uh, uh, All three of us were in New York on 9-11, and Irene and I were living in a uh, residence for international graduate students. So there was 700 students from 110 countries around the world. And so uh, there was a lot about our experience then of an international community taking care of us, knocking on our door, checking if we were okay. Some of them played piano for us and brought us all together as a community. And then the kindness that we saw in New York that years later, when we first heard the story, that resonated with us. So um, we applied for a grant from the Canadian government and we uh, we went out to Newfoundland uh, to uh, for the 10th anniversary to interview not not only the locals, but there were so many come from ways who were returning to reunite with the friends that they had made there. And we interviewed everyone we possibly could. Uh, Irene and I initially didn't agree that uh, that it was a musical. We, we were looking at... Um, other verbatim uh, uh, shows that that we'd read that we loved. Uh, But uh, I kept saying, you have to hear, I mean, we had already, I'd already inundated her with all of my Newfoundland music collection, but I was like, you have to hear it live. And uh, so on on September 10th, uh, there was a benefit concert at the world's largest walk-in refrigerator and uh, and the some of our favorite bands, Shani Gaduk and the Navigators, were playing that night. And the minute they started playing, everyone started dancing. It was this life-affirming music that Newfoundlanders have used to get through years and years of living on a rock with really hard winters. Uh, and everyone started swinging each other around, the executives from Lufthansa in their three-piece suits. And Irene turned to me and she said, yeah, you're right, it's a musical.
3: You know, I was worried about how we would fit so many storylines in, you know, with something like the Laramie Project. They've got uh, little snippets of so many different people. And I really wanted to be able to do that. I didn't want to uh, pick one protagonist or one, like one or two people that, you know, make it all about the people who fell in love or all about the captain. I mean, the stories are all amazing. and I wanted to include all of them as did David. And so it was like, okay, how's the music going to do that? We're not going to be able to stop and have uh, everyone have their solo number to tell them to tell us what they're going through. And so it was like, okay, well, how do we use the music to help us get through all of these stories as quickly and as expediently as possible. Um, And I think at that moment, I was kind of like, oh, well, you know, this will just be like a weird little Canadian piece that uh, no one will ever see except for parents of people in high school who are forced to do it. Um, Yeah, and I was wrong, so...
0: And then Christopher, I presume at some point uh, around this time, you became involved with uh, La Jolla Playhouse. Can you talk a, a little bit about, about how you came into the picture with Come From Away?
4: Yeah, so um, it was already uh, uh, probably a second draft by the time um, I read it. And they had already done their the first kind of Sheridan College incarnation of it. Um, my producing director at La Jolla Playhouse came into my office and she was working uh, with David and Irene, Um, on a a reading of it at NAMPT. And uh, she put the script down on my desk and she said, I'm not leaving your office until you start reading this. And uh, as David mentioned, I was in New York during 9-11 and had very strong and unresolved feelings about 9-11. And I think when I turned the page for the first time, I I think I shared what a lot of people share when they first hear about this musical is, oh, how does a musical and all of the seriousness of 9-11 go together? Um, and very quickly, as I started reading, my, all the tension relaxed out of my shoulders. I am like, oh, David and I are going to take such good care of us. They're, they, they have such um, kind of grace about the way that they um, take a really serious event, but they put the focus on what's happening far from that event in this tiny town in Newfoundland. And the music is so kind of organically a part of this place and these people and the balance between the humor and the seriousness um, is done with uh, so much honesty in the writing um, that I think um, we, we end up um, telling a story of people um, showing their best selves at this terrible moment, which I think turns out to be um, a really important story to tell um, as much now, I, I, I think, as, as it was 20 years ago.
0: I'm really glad you brought that up, Christopher. Um... One of the things that we talk often with filmmakers on this podcast about is their decisions about how to start the piece. You know, what's the opening scene? How do you get into the story? How do you establish kind of the language that you're going to use to tell this particular story? And you make a really interesting decision uh, with the film uh, that's, that's opening today, congratulations by the way, um, to, uh, to open it with the theater reopening and people coming back in after the shutdown with COVID. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and why that felt right for the film?
4: Yeah. So we've been looking for several years for like, what's the opportunity to kind of, um, capture what's happening on stage, um, in, in, in film terms. And um, I think it was the as we started to approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and also as it became clear that the, um, there was going to be a reopening on Broadway at about the same time and that kind of re-entry into the theaters and rediscovery of the community of experiencing a play together. The fact that those were going to kind of happen at the same time was part of why we did this now. And I was um, I was walking to... A kind of tech scout of the theater with the cinematographer for the first time, and I was walking through Times Square. It was pretty early in the morning, and there was no one there. And I was thinking, "Well, when is the last time I the Times Square felt like this?" And it was nine eleven. So uh, we start the film that way with a kind of empty Times Square, and then the say You start to hear the sound of the first audience coming back uh, to the Schoenfeld. Um, so since it was kind of those two events that were why we're making the film now, it seemed like the right place to start.
0: Yeah, it's really it 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 it's amazingly powerful the connection between the two um the two events and and obviously New York being one of the places that was kind of the first epicenter of COVID in the United States and obviously with 9/11 uh New York has been kind of at the heart of both of those national, you know, and international traumas. So it's it's really a wonderful it's really a wonderful opening and it it, it leads me into this question of tone uh which I really want to ask all three of you about because Obviously you're dealing with nine 11 with this collective uh, tragedy uh, and, and, and very traumatic wound. Um, But yet the, the, the show is so life affirming and so positive and filled with, with hope. But at the same time, you don't shy away from, you have all these sequences and numbers in the show with people who are, you know, the, the, the come from aware is the plain people who were stuck in gander, You know, they're not happy to be there. There's a lot of strife that's going on between them. Some of them are very, very unhappy. You don't shy away from depicting that in the show. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious about the process of development and how you navigated the tone and how you worked those moments in, but still kept the ship kind of sailing in an, in an uplifting direction. I think a lot of that
2: comes from the Newfoundlanders themselves. When we first went out there you know they're just such incredible storytellers and there's this there, there's this real sense of being taken care of by both of the you you're telling really you know awful stories about people missing their families wondering where they are and 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 then at the minute you start to well up they will uh, they will reach out and say no, no no here's a joke and they take care of you with that balance of of uh, of you know, uh, humor and, and heart. Uh, and and I think we tried to pass that on. Uh, and, and at the same time, it's been, um, it's been part of the slow development of the piece. When we first uh, presented it in America at Goodspeed, uh, I, Irene and I were sinking down in our seats when people started laughing. And, and I think there was something, you, you know, pent up that and the Newfoundlanders were funny people and 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 there's a lot of joy in in the show and we were like is this too is this too much is it too joyful do we have to balance this and uh, and I don't think it is but we but, but we had we had to make sure that we were representing everything
3: I think early on Chris like you can't you can't show the light you can't show how miraculous the light of this piece is without showing the dark and so that's why that's there
4: and I would say during the development of the piece we really did keep on exploring and writing more into the Ali character and the strip search at the airport to there was the Hannah's big song about trying to get in touch with her son back in New York, um, which she just can't get news from uh, was written kind of as we were in previews in various cities. So we definitely kept writing into the darker tones of the show as we as we went through previews.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're right. The lightness the lightness of the the tone makes the darkness uh even more impactful. Like I I just was struck again watching the film, you know, the moment when you know Beulah calls Hannah to tell her the news. Uh it's just really, you know, it's you kind of expect it, um, but it's nonetheless it it's it's shocking and just deeply, deeply emotional. So it's uh it's a it's it's a very fine needle that you threaded very carefully, but very uh, deftly, I would say. When I was
4: in the editing room uh, with uh, *Come From Away*, I did sometimes think also about the first film I um, directed. Jeffrey had some of the same questions of, you know, set right. We it was based on a play as well. Like right in the middle of the AIDS crisis, um, a character um, who kind of swears off sex, and it's a comedy. So, like, how you balance the the comic and the um, and the serious and and ultimately, when you succeed, it's because the the, the most serious moments and the biggest trauma um, require release in some way. So that when you get those that, that laugh right, it's a bigger laugh than you would ever have about an inconsequential subject.
2: Can I? Can I also just add that uh, that one of Irene and my first dates was to go see Jeffrey uh, together, and do that so forever.
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So clearly, we we learned from Chris and are thrilled to be working with him.
0: Uh, well, thrilled. Well, I'll I'll fanboy I'll fanboy out again. I remember standing in a long line at the Sunset Five in West Hollywood waiting to see Jeffrey uh, with a with a lot of friends. So uh, you, you, your 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 work has had an impact on me for quite a long time. I'd like to talk to you you three every day. Just it makes me feel very very good. <laughs> <laughs> um. I've got a question, uh, David and Irene, for you. You know, it's not unusual, uh, certainly with large scale Broadway musicals for the book and the music and the lyrics to all be written by different artists, sometimes different teams of artists. And yet uh, the the two of you uh, wrote the book and the music and the lyrics together and you're a married couple. Um, So I I think one of the things that that, that that afforded the show is that it... There's really not a there doesn't feel like a huge separation between the book scenes and the songs. This feels almost more like a in a sense of through composed musical in a really wonderful way. So can you talk a little bit about the process of writing and how did you decide, Okay, song goes here? What do we need to communicate with the songs and, and how that process evolved through the development of the show? It was an organic process from the beginning. I I think I already mentioned that uh, that
2: at the start, we hoped that Canadian high school students might be forced to do this show. So we had no pressure to... You know subscribe to a to a format of how to make a musical and and i think because of that we just wanted to tell the story the best we could there there was a, a lot of initial discussion that we worked on the show uh we wrote down every single story that we could when we were out there and every story was better than the next so we wanted to tell them all we had the, we've got these notes with tiny little mouse type of every single thing that we wanted to fit in and so a lot of it was how do we group. Stories about faith. How do we group stories about food? How do we group stories about uh, love or religion? Um, And uh, and then finding characters that began at the beginning of the story and then had a change and an arc towards the end. So sort of uh, spine characters that we could track through, and then we could layer some of the anecdotes that we wanted to also include along the way. So, but but even having said that, you know, it was really starting at the beginning with Welcome to the Rock. And then questioning, what's the next thing? And I, I think a lot, um, a lot of what you see on stage, because it interweaves so much, is we weren't looking for here's the song placement. We were just saying, what's the next step, and does that feel, you know, is is there music in it? And so there's there's a number of songs like Thirty Eight Planes, which is which is literally just counting planes, and then you're done with it. It doesn't have a chorus. It doesn't have a bridge. It doesn't. It's not made in the you know, the, the right way to write a song. And at the same time, if we had done that, the audience would have gotten so bored by it. And so we, we tried to stick with, uh, just follow our instincts and, um, and then ask Chris about his instincts and, uh, and then rewrite until two in the morning a lot, uh, and try to try to just make the moments work the best they could. And, and, um, I remember Ian Isendrath are, are, um, our music supervisor, he teaches the course on musical theater out in Seattle, and uh, some of his students came to him and were like, what about that show? That doesn't follow any of the rules. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, uh, there's something to be said about the rules being good things to know, and uh, also it's good to follow your instincts and break them sometimes.
4: I'd like to say one thing about their writing process. Um, so in rehearsal, we would articulate a problem, and then they would go home overnight and... Um, and, and right to try to solve it. And um, often the next day they would bring in um, two different possible solutions. And over the course of a couple of days, I started to realize, oh, David in the next, in the rehearsal is pitching Irene's solution and Irene is pitching David's solution, which I thought was such great like marriage technique, if nothing else, right? So that they're always kind of defending the other person's ideas. I thought that was something quite beautiful about that. That's good because it could go one of
0: two ways, right?
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot of people who say, you know, how do you write together when you're married? And um, uh, we're obviously in two separate rooms right now, but uh, but in the same
0: same house, I would point out. It's
2: always, uh, it's always wonderful. And at the end of the day, you know, having, like Chris says, having someone that uh, you know is on the same Uh, page with you and wants to tell the same story for the same reasons is is the best gift that you could ask for and it's the details in between that you have to sort out but everything else is um, is why you do it
3: part of the reason we started pitching each other's ideas is because they're they're never in on our part of the journey with chris but in the past with other shows um and a little bit in the beginning very 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 early just like the Sheridan stuff, there was a little bit of people being like, oh, the best way to deal with the married writing team is to divide and conquer. And you could tell that they were trying to, you know, figure out, you know, who who was going to be on their side. You know, and it didn't matter if it was director, producer, choreographer, music director, it it, it, would, it would happen. And so that's how that started. And also we have like, we have one email address for the two of us and it's not because, you know, we're like you know, completely codependent, but it's just, uh, we like people to not know who an answer or a question is coming from. Although it's a waste of time now because Chris knows us very well, Sue knows us very well, you know, like it's, it's, our our drug product producer, Sue and Randy. So like, it, it's kind of moot at this point for these guys at least, but
4: they they know who's writing which email, even though we we don't sign it. Yeah. It was interesting that the, the David mentioned that the, the musical breaks, the rules. And I think it really does. It, it, I feel like one of the first questions you ask about a musical um, or a film or a play is, you know, who's the, who's the lead and it doesn't have one, right? It's got 12 actors playing hundreds and thousands of people. So it's so sort of the center emotional event is so spread out. But one of the things we do have um, that um, kind of replaces that is the delight of 12 actors, transforming and you come to know those 12 even despite the fact that they're going to play many different parts so you kind of um the 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 pleasure in theatrical and acting transformation gives us a lot of juice that you wouldn't have with just like a lead and also there's no there's no villain right so that's um but that but everybody does have this shared trauma um uh, around 9-11 if you were you know old enough to have lived through it Um, and that how you deal with that trauma turns out to be the problem that everyone's trying to solve.
0: It's a really, it's a really good point that you bring up. Um, uh, I I think I mentioned before we started rolling that, uh, uh, my good friends, Larry O'Keefe and Nell Benjamin, I reached, when I found out that I was going to be talking with you, I reached out to them. Uh, they, um, uh, they obviously did, uh. Uh, legally Blonde together on on Broadway, and and Nell wrote the uh, the lyrics uh, for uh, Mean Girls. So I, I asked him for some questions for you, and Larry wrote back about the challenge. Uh, Chris, for exactly what you just said, what the, the challenge of of making a show that didn't have a villain. So all those kind of tropes and those kind of hooks that you would normally dramatically have in a show, you don't have. But in a way, it's this constant looming presence of 9-11 and what's happening off screen that, that that provided the villain for you right i think that's right and and there's also i've been
4: thinking a lot um in this part of the process as we've been making the film about the way that uncertainty is also such a problem everyone has to deal with that those those people on the planes didn't know what's happening no one really knew was the was the Attack over, you know, by noon on the eleventh. Was this one wave in many, many attacks? Um, how ma- Who and how many were the were the terrorists? And what was the world going to be like after that? Like, did it change everything, or was there going to be a re- you know return? And I think that's is true now too. So, how you deal with uncertainty and the unknowableness of what comes next seems to me. Um, uh, a very vibrant question to ask in 21, as much as it was in 2001.
2: One of the things that we worked on so much was, uh, was uh, that the audience was a, a, another storyteller in, in, in this, that everyone brought their story to the table and every, you know, and because it's so time stamped throughout the show that everyone brings their story and remembers where they were that Tuesday morning, where, what they were doing the next Wednesday. And in some, in some ways it brings up your memories of what was happening that, and I think. Uh the antagonist of the show, that uncertainty and nine eleven and the feeling of helplessness and the feeling of uh, wanting to help and and needing to help I, I think we all felt that, and so there's something really powerful about about the audience having experienced exactly the same antagonist and and being in that uh, journey that that makes this a universal story that reminds us you know they could have been there at at any minute too.
3: I think also the fact that there's a the tension of you just keep waiting for the extra shoe to drop, right? The extra, no, 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 it's the other shoe. You keep waiting for the other shoe to drop and, and it doesn't. And there's something, there's a surprising payoff to that like when you think about it you think about like well, first of all we didn't want to invent something horrible that happened because it didn't right so we just i mean aside from the one reason everyone was there in the first place you know kept being like oh they found something that looked like a bomb but it was a vodka bottle oh someone left some powder around in the kindergarten classroom oh it's just someone's magnesium you know like and it just it was like it's not really a fun ride for the audience it doesn't do much for us as writers as a director being like, Oh, that's why are we doing this? You know? And so we, we just let the story go as it was. And it's interesting, the tension that's created by when's the other shoe going to drop and you can imagine the most horrible things. And we see them on TV and we see them in fictional stories and you're kind of like, Oh yeah, there it is. That's, Ooh, that's gross. You know? But like the crazy thing about this show is, is you're like, Oh wow. There's, nothing really gross happening out there every wait Come on. Everyone's nice. Come on. You know, and it's so, so weird that people have trouble with that. They're like, they must've made that up. It's like, really? You could imagine anything awful. And you're like, oh yeah, <laughs> people are nice. And it's like,
0: oh. but it, that makes the human moments so much more impactful. Like I'm, I'm thinking about, like, I remember when I saw the show, the gasp that came through the audience, when you find out that the bonobo lost her baby, you know, that like, you know that's a, a deeply moving moment for the for the audience because uh, you know I think that the the humor and the lightness just make this just sort of make your heart open. So when those moments do come in, they feel even more impactful.
4: Yeah, I also uh, the I get so impacted by the the kind of birth of the the impulse to profile a Middle Eastern man. Right. Like that, even in this place where everyone is so kind and and doing such a good job of taking care of each other, that that Middle Eastern man is a subject of suspicion um, it seems to me like a, a very heartbreaking fact of uh, of our world.
0: David and Irene, you talked about going there uh, to Gander for the 10th anniversary and collecting the stories. I think one of the challenges with this sort of thing is also there's there's always too much material. So how did you make decisions about like, what? and, and maybe tell us like what was one of the stories that you really wish you could have gotten in that you had to leave, that you had to leave out?
3: Uh, to further my thesis about things that are uh, possibly too nice is, you know, we have more information about the Make-A-Wish kids uh, staying at the Salvation Army camp. And um, the birthday party that was planned. Um, and we just were like, wow, like we can't put it on stage. People will call it exploitive. People will, it, it, we were just like, okay, so we're just going to, you know, we wanted to pay homage to what was done, but we just very simply stated, We don't sing about it because that doesn't seem right. Um, mm-hmm. We don't spend too long in it because, you know, even even that somehow doesn't seem right because of the danger of it being exploitive um, or misinterpreted. Um, David, what did what, what you?
2: Doing? I remember. I mean, one of those moments. I remember Nick and Diane telling us that as they got on the plane to leave at the end, that they looked up and uh, there was a hurricane coming in. So the rain was just starting, and there was a uh, a rainbow in the sky. And they said, "We'll always be under the same sky." and 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 Irene and I were like, we can never musicalize that. It's too. It's too it's much. Deep,
0: it's too, it's too, much. too good. It's too
2: sweet. You know, and it's wonderful. It's amazing. And I love them. And I love that they said that to each other. And doing it would absolutely, uh, you know, it would it would hurt the show. There was there was. I mean, we, we really tried to get in everything. The the first draft was uh, was uh, like uh, over a hundred pages. No one was off the planes yet. You, you know, we 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 were trying to fit in everything. There was. There is three scenes of people uh, at the air traffic controllers once the planes were down, which is an incredible accomplishment, what they did in a limited amount of time, getting all those planes on the ground. Uh, but once they were down, they had nothing to do. So they made chili nonstop for five days. And I was determined that there should be three scenes about making chili, apparently. And eventually it got whittled down and whittled down to just Doug coming on stage saying, I brought you some chili. and What was important about that was that when air traffic controllers come to see the show, they say, you got in the chili and, and that we got it right for them, that we gave them as much credit as we could, uh, you know, everything from the pharmacist fulfilling international orders. He's mentioned in there, you you know, we, we really wanted to, um, you know, if we could have read the yellow pages or the, the, you read the phone book from, uh, from Newfoundland and just said, literally everyone helped out here. We wanted to tell all of their stories.
4: There's a sort of period in development of a new musical right before you open on Broadway, and that's probably going to be largely the script that will live, um, where you, you're like doing your final cuts. And I remember quite a lot of late, late nights where we were trying to find the right balance and there was still a little too many sweet stories. And like the, that, that tough thing of like, all right, what are this, what are the gotta haves? And what are we going to, what are the things that are incredibly like sweet, but, but are going to go under the knife? And, uh, so there was a couple tough, um, tough moments of some beautiful moments having to go by the wayside.
2: Yeah. The, I remember the last one, Chris, that, that we did uh, was uh, uh, Beulah tells a story of coming into Gander Academy. And uh, it, and th- th- this actually was, um, it was in Lewis' part, wasn't it, Irene? Or it, it was a story that we had heard, but it was a teacher coming in and a world famous artist had done this beautiful uh, drawing in chalk of of a goose in flight representing Gander. And we had this beautiful, just tiny moment of silence as this teacher ran in to see this. At looking for the last passengers, and was just struck by this, you know, thank you notes everywhere, and this piece of art that the person had been working on clearly for days and days, every single feather. And there's something about creating art and also the impermanence of it that eventually they had to wipe it off and return back to normal. And there is a really beautiful um, moment, and uh, and you know, it's not in there, but uh, but I th- and I think it was the right choice at the end. But uh, but you know, there's a lot, there was a lot of those that we had to make.
0: I feel I feel myself getting choked up just as you even say that. So another another emotional moment, Um, Christopher. I want to ask you about the stagecraft because I love the staging of the musical. It's so inventive. You talked about, I mean, how many actors? Twelve actors playing literally hundreds of of characters. But I I love you know just the 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 stagecraft is so amazing to me. You know you 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 get people in chairs and you turn them ninety degrees and they go from being on a plane to being on a bus. Um, you know the the staging of the of the air traffic controllers with the lighting. Um, I, I just I, I find the the um, just the, the the stagecraft so uh, w- wonderfully impressive, and you cover so much ground so quickly.
1: Mr. Mayor, I saw your car in the lot. Crystal, turn up the radio so as we all can hear. Doug, you probably want to get down to air traffic control right away. There's only supposed to be two air traffic controllers on, but instead there's fourteen. Everyone's heard and the aisle shows up without even being asked.
0: We're told there'll be over 200 planes getting diverted across the country. Lufthansa 414, this is Gander Center, squack code 7235. Uh, due to a recent development, you were ordered to land at Gander YQX immediately. Copy
1: that. This is an order. No, yes, sir, you do not have a choice. No, sir, this is not a drill. Yes, sir, I understand you have VIPs on board. I'll see your VIPs that raise you in international emergency. Land your plane now. Copy that, Gander Tower. This is Air France. Air Lingus. Lufthansa, British Airways. Eminence. This is American 49er. What am I supposed to tell my passengers? Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. There's been an incident in the United States. We're having trouble with the cabin lighting system we're just going to touch down while we fix the system ladies and gentlemen please fasten your seat belts looks like we'll be making an unexpected landing in gander newfoundland can you
0: talk a little bit about kind of the development process about how you were going to stage uh the show
4: um so the staging is very much created in conjunction with our choreographer kelly divine and right before we went into the first full production in la jolla um we did a kind of a workshop where we just um we we um focused on 20 minutes and we said ourselves what's the simplest we could possibly tell this story um and we tried it with 12 chairs and two tables um, and we did that really hard section where you're on a plane and then a bus and then another bus and a living room and back in the airport, uh, and then an office. So like a lot of different locations. And like, could, are we can we be clear? Can we be clear about where we are, who everyone is with the most economical of of changes? And I kept feeling like the the simpler you can tell the story clearly. Um, the the better, and it, it don't get me wrong. The, the to act in this show is fiendishly difficult. It is so jam packed with little simultaneity of gestures, and you have to be on this exact spot because the light is very focused on uh you know three feet left of center and two feet up from the proscenium line. So there's the amount of information you have to hold in your head is crazy. But
0: hopefully the effect ultimately is very very simple. And a lot of accent shifts too,
4: obviously. Yeah, that was very harrowing because it's a really hard, um, the Gander dialect is not intuitive for American actors. And it's it's related <laughs> to Irish, but not really. Um, and so we worked very, very hard. And then we were about to go into our ca- concert in Gander and everyone was so anxious to actually perform for the real people. And, and, and they were more anxious about the dialects than everything. Um, and I have to say the, the generosity, I mean, maybe maybe we're uh, they're, they're, they're just being nice to us, but the people of Gander and Newfoundland have been incredibly kind about the way we're telling their story, where we found the truth, and, and actually even about the dialects.
1: Climb aboard. Hop right in. You look some tired. Nothing to worry about now. We'll get you where you're going. I'm guessing you never heard of Gander before. Well, that's it in a rear view mirror. You'll need to reset your watches. We've got our own time zone here. Everything happens half an hour later in Newfoundland. You've all seen the airport. Used to be the biggest airport in North America. Planes used to stop here to gas up from everywhere. Oh, Frank Sinatra, Albert Einstein. Muhammad Ali, the, the Queen. Queen. This is where the Beatles first set foot in North America. My father once went sledding with Fidel Castro. Many, many jet planes that could get across the ocean on one tank. So there's no need to refuel anymore. Leaving us with his joy at airport. There's talk lately about tearing it down. Lucky for you, we haven't got around to it yet. <laughs> now there's the reason I drive slow. That there in the middle of the road. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's the moose. <laughs> She'll move when she's good and ready.
0: Well, so I'm curious about, so I, I had a question for you about how many of the, the Gander people came to New York and saw the show, but did you just say that you that you went there and did a concert yeah. version of it? On our way,
4: we did uh, La Jolla at, in a co-pro with Seattle, and then we um, developed the show further at Ford's Theater in Washington. And then on our way to Toronto, which was the last place we did it before New York, we did two performances in, um, as David said, the um, the largest uh, refrigerator. Um, at, what's, the, what's the phrase? I'm not, it's not in my head.
2: The world's largest walking you. Exactly, which is actually an ice yeah. rink
4: that they turned into a refrigerator to feed everybody on uh, on the week of the show. Right. Um, yes. Uh, So we had 2,500 people for each performance. We did two of them. And it was the real people uh, 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 from the town and and surrounding towns, uh, many of whom were interviewed for the show. And the emotion in that room was unlike anything I've ever experienced, about five minutes before the... End of the show, they just started to scream at the stage, <laughs> like and then like they just like there was like a five minute long scream that then turned into the largest dance party you've ever seen at the end of the show, where everybody was up and dancing with each other. It was a, a life, a, a, a memory I will never forget.
2: Oh, it's just pretty amazing to to uh, to give back the story that someone has told you, and and you know to do it as a benefit concert, but also to do it. Um, you know, in a way that says thank you uh, to those people and to get their affirmation. We we have had the real people come along for the ride uh, starting very early in some of the first workshops. Um, Janice came and Kevin T came and uh, Beverly Bass is well over a hundred times she's seen the show. And I think Nick <laughs> and I are close, closely behind her. Uh, so they, they've come along uh, the entire time and every time they come, we're very nervous and looking at them. But to have the entire community uh, be there and, Uh, to sing along the lyrics, to heave away right in the middle of it, having 2,500 people who all know the response to this song, uh, and then to cheer at the end. um, We just, you know, we all burst into tears. It was incredible.
4: The only moment I can think of that rivals it was actually having um, the audience in for our final day of shooting on the film. Um, The the first time back in a Broadway house, the first time seeing a Broadway show, the first audience um, the the feeling in that room was um, different, but as intense.
0: Well, okay, so now now you're you're leading into my next line of questioning, which is about the film and how you and how you brought it about. Um, what was the process? So you just said that that you know you didn't bring the audience in until the last day, and obviously you're doing this in the middle of the COVID lockdown, so presumably you had a lot of, of safety precautions and a lot of protocols that you had to adhere to. But tell us about the process of shooting the film.
4: So we had four days of shooting and um, the first day we ran it twice, the show, and with a very small audience, really just kind of like right in the front row or two. Um, and then our second and third days, we did what we called specialty shooting. So we had cams and cranes and, and, and got in and, and crafted a lot of individual shots. And then our final day, we had um, a full audience in, uh, masked, um, some of whom were first responders, some of whom were frontline workers. Um, so the um, the feeling in that room was electric, and the silences were incredibly quiet, and the laughter was completely explosive. And uh, we sh- we shot uh, that that final day with uh, with an audience in the room and. The actors really had to focus to 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 not get kind of swamped by the emotion of being back with an audience for the first time in a year and a half.
0: Were you able to? Did you were you able to run it straight through, or did you have to stop and start that day? Uh,
4: it ran or? it straight through. Um, the, that's one of the amazing things about making a film with a cast that's been running on Broadway for several years is that they're uh, they're um, incredibly. Knowledgeable in the flow of things, and we designed it so that they could they could run straight through, and the ten cameras would um, would capture around what they were doing.
0: But I do want to point out, so uh, I so you guys were well into what you were in the third year of your Broadway run when Broadway closed down, and I understand it was very uh, abrupt. Like you basically you found out on the day of that there would be no show that night, and and then things were closed for a year and a half. So. When you brought that original cast back a year later to shoot the film, like how much of a rehearsal process was? How how long did it take them to kind of get back to where they had been?
4: So the the, the cast we shot for the film was largely the company that's going to now reopen on um, Broadway. Um, with a couple of um, of uh, other people from the original cast um, sprinkled in as well. Um, we had maybe two weeks of, of rehearsal to kind of um, bring it back into everybody's bodies and everyone's voices. We rehearsed in a, um, a room in the hotel where we were all um, uh, uh, bubbled. And
0: uh, it had, you had a COVID, had a COVID, bubble, COVID at bubble at the hotel. And, and yeah. it was,
4: uh, there was a, um column right at the worst place right in the middle was like the only option for a rehearsal room so people were constantly like talking around the column and like pretending that they were doing their blocking so it was not the ideal circumstances um but the it was amazing how quickly things came back to people even a year later um although like just people had forgotten how to do small talk in the year of being in their living rooms like just like how
0: the little ways you 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 are with each other and that you take for granted suddenly you had to relearn one of the things i found amazing about it was obviously you know the set was left untouched in the theater because you know the, the theater didn't need the space for something else during this year plus of the shutdown and the dressing rooms were untouched. Like, what was it like for those actors to come back into their dressing rooms over a year later? That must have been a very emotional moment. I as
4: think well. it was. And I think it um, also because they had, most of those actors had been in those dressing rooms for several, you know, for more than a year, a couple of years. So that dressing room becomes a home and you decorate it and it's very personalized. But it was, it was satisfying. And, and the process of bringing the theater back to like, life, because you know, actors and people who make theater have such a emotional connection to the, the actual building where you make the theater, uh, bringing the, the space back to life and then repopulating it with a first audience back. All of it felt like uh, it, it reminded everyone why, why we do what we do.
0: Christopher, was this, was this your first time? Uh, obviously, the movie is streaming in on Apple TV Plus and Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. Was this the first time that you had had mixed in Dolby Atmos before?
4: Uh, It was. Yeah. Um, And I I also uh, I had never I'd only ever um, done films for theatrical release. So trying to wrap your minds around what, um, you know, okay, so people are going to watch this um, in a beautiful home setup. They're going to watch this on their iPad. They're going to watch this on their phone, like trying to figure out like what a mix sounds like that will live in a beautiful, sumptuous setup and the worst possible tinny you know, squeezed sound possible. Uh, I would occasionally, like I would say, can you just uh, give me that last 10 minutes that we just mixed and I'd go and listen to it on my, you know, phone uh, out in the other room just to sort of hear what the worst case scenario was. Um, but it's a new world, right? Like people people listen on all of these platforms in all of these different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, nothing I think is more special than seeing a, a film in a movie theater. Um, It's probably the closest you come in the film world to the experience of theater um, in a Broadway um, house. But uh, it's also amazingly democratic that people can um, experience these these films and um, these scores uh, just in the middle of their lives at this really stressed time.
0: So I, I I understand. I want to make sure I, I had this right. The original plan was to make a more traditional kind of cinema film version of Come From Away. Is that is that right? And you were you were planning to go to Gander. You were going to shoot on location. I presume you were going to use some of the locals as as extras. And and then of course COVID happened, and you had to pivot. So can you talk a little bit about um, sort of the decision process around doing the filmed adaptation of the play? And sort of I'm, I'm also just very curious about. We were talking earlier about the stagecraft and the double casting and all and how was that what was your plan to sort of use were you gonna do that with the with the film version as well?
2: We're still really committed to doing this doing the film and you know from the, from the beginning uh getting it right and authenticity was always uh, a big part of it um you know we, uh, we would love to go out to gander eventually um but you know, it felt like the right decision, not only, you know, from a safety perspective for, for our friends out in Newfoundland, but also uh, at a time when we could bring our Broadway cast back, when we could capture what was amazing on in a theater that people couldn't get to, that we could actually share that uh, and and bring people back to work at a time when so many of our companies around the world couldn't be there. Uh, this just felt like the right decision. And, um, you know, it, it felt like a unique opportunity when we actually had the theater for for four days that we could run the shows and shoot and put cameras in it, and uh, it, you know, it all it, this fell into place. And when I say fell into place, it required a monumental amount of work from a lot of people, but uh, but it it felt right.
4: Uh, one of our uh, kind of creative producers um, on the location film was Bill Condon, who you would know from he directed Dreamgirls. And- um, and uh, the live-action Beauty and the Beast and uh, worked on the screenplay of Chicago. So amazing uh, experience with musicals on film. And um, he was one of the people who, um, in the middle of the pandemic, um, started encouraging us, hey, there's going to be this moment in September of 21 when we're the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Is looks like it's going to be the same time that Broadway starts up again. Uh, kind of those two parts of a perfect storm, maybe, maybe, maybe this is the moment to capture, um, the Broadway show for a release in, in September of 21. And now here we are.
0: Yeah. But it's not just, it's not just kind of a time capsule capture of the show. I I think one of the things I was a little anxious about when I heard about it was, you know, the, the live experience was so full of life and joy. And I, you know, I was a little anxious maybe about how you were going to be able to capture that, but you did a fantastic job with the film. It's every bit as exuberant and life affirming as as seeing the show.
4: I, I I loved making it. I have to say, and it, it was different than making the play. Right? I mean, it's like the the, the ten cameras um, working with a, a DP as kind of your main collaborator. Um, in some ways, making the play the the in addition to David and Irene Kelly, our choreographer and Ian music. The, the lighting designer was such a huge part of it. Um, Howell, who has since passed away and we dedicated the film to him, but the way that like, he kind of carves the space with light. Um, I think uh, we had a lot of conversations with um, Tobias Schlesler, our, um, our DP on the film about how we kind of honor that lighting design and the geometry of the staging, but also we can put a camera where, um, the best seat in the house doesn't get to see it from you know behind on top a, a, across the the value and of you it. can use close-ups yeah absolutely like the the way you could sort of see tiny details and nuances in a close up um that somebody in the 10th row will will never get to see so it felt like um the the goal my goal was to to honor the essence of of what we had on stage but also lean into all the um, the the amazing possibilities of um, of what shooting um, adds to the experience
1: by eight o'clock the bar is completely packed with people from around the world everybody's talking about where they're staying and what they've seen and the bar staff keep making runs for more beer and liquor. after an hour people are swimming in the river out back and no no one brought their swim trunks oh. couple of the oh, local no. guys get up and and fiddles and someone brings out an ugly stick oh, yeah.
0: David, you mentioned uh, "Heave Away," which is uh, just such a wonderful uh, number, and it, it it leads me to a question about you know you, you obviously made the decision to not use a traditional kind of pit orchestra. The musicians are on the stage with the with the actors, and in fact, during "Heave Away," I think some of them come in and actually you know <laughs> come come downstage and perform uh, with the with the cast. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that decision to handle the music in that manner, and sort of what? What does that do for the show?
2: I mean, we've always said that, uh, that music is in the DNA of the people out of Newfoundland. And, uh, and I, I think we talked earlier about how the style of music is how they've got through their hard winters. So so when it's really cold out there, not only do they have nothing to do, so they've all learned how to play three instruments each, but they, they go over to each other's house and uh, into, they have kitchen parties and everyone brings their instruments and everyone tells stories and sings songs and comes together as a community as a way of surviving together and staying warm. And so what we wanted to do with the show was bring the audience into a Newfoundland kitchen party. And and so there are guests in there and they're bringing their stories and everyone else is telling their stories and singing their songs. And, um, you know, even on our first show, My Mother's Lesbian, Jewish Week and Wedding, uh, because it somewhat pivoted from my singer songwriter career where I would play guitar and then tell a story about that song and then play guitar and then tell a story about that song. We had the band behind me and it was the same thing. We would play a song and then people would help us enact it and I would step in and out. And, and it felt even more natural with come from away because the band is part of the community. And, uh, I I think, you know, Chris can speak to this, but, but like initially the band was sort of off in the trees a little bit and, more and more they would sort of find their way in and, you know, and, and you could feel the audience wanting that and you could feel the actors in the band wanting it and you could see the joy of them playing together and, you know, uh, Astrid and Alec bump their hips together in this like amazing, like we're, we're having fun together. And it was, it was, it's part of the joy of of the show is that they're all making the show together. uh, And there was something really wonderful about that.
4: Yeah. We're, when we, did uh, technical rehearsals before we ever had our first audience in La Jolla. the The band was visible but off on the sides in the forest, kind of of the set, and um, and we had t- given them. I think uh, Irene and David. We had figured out a, um, a piece of music for them to play while the audience was walking out after the the actor curtain call was over. Exit Exit user. User, right. right, and uh, the user. first audience we had, uh, the actors took their bow. The audience was up on their feet and having a, just waves of love at the stage, and then they the actors left the stage, and the audience didn't leave. They were like, so the act the the band played the the little bit of exit music and then the audience was still like, okay, more, we're not done. Like, and so the, we were, we to write more exit
0: music. it was like, an, it was like an encore to yeah, totally.
4: So we like, over the yeah. first three performances, we kept writing more. And also like, it was like, it's weird to be playing this, all this with the, uh, the band sort of partly visible. So we kept scooting their chairs on and by three days into it, they were fully on stage with a two and a half minute Playoff and choreography, so it, that was very organically like the audience wanted it. Like they just weren't done, and they wanted to chance to have um, a kitchen party with the band at the, as a as a last, you know, and with each other, like that. They, they yeah,
0: you're absolutely right. And I feel like you know, I, I mean, I remember very clearly the experience of seeing the show on Broadway, and you've just been through this very emotional, cathartic experience, and and what well, the catharsis almost came. Through the band playing at the end, you're, you're right. Nobody left, and I think a lot of people were up in the aisles and kind of like it was a, it kind of it kind of just became a spontaneous party for a few minutes after the show. And that wasn't, yeah,
4: it's the worst exit music. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're no exits as
0: exit music. It completely failed. We didn't
4: plan that all the way. Like that was a case of the musical revealing itself to us all.
2: Yeah, I think there is something amazing of of people coming into the show, possibly somewhat hesitant, you, you know, and not sure where we're going to go with it, and by the end they don't want to stay. We're part of a, a huge community that's just at this big concert that we're all staying together. And uh, and I'll, I'll just say this as well, that uh, in the film, one of the things that we're delighted to do is uh, during the credits, we get to extend that even farther because um, uh, coming out on September 17th, uh, we have a, a, a new album called Covers from Away, where actual Newfoundland bands are covering songs from the show, and we get to highlight two of them. So there's even more reason to stay and to dance uh, at the end of the show.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I, I know we're at the end of our time, um, so I really want to thank you guys. I have one final question for you, um, as I as I promised. This came from our friend Nell Benjamin um, and David and Irene. This is for you. She wants to know what's it like to write a musical together while parenting, and which arguments are worse—the ones over the work or the ones over the parenting?
1: Oh, I
3: remember
0: being a yeah. uh, time to sing "Legally Blonde"? We'll sing "Legally Blonde."
3: <laughs> I remember Nell and Larry and us with our eight week olds and running into them at naps and being like, look, we have a baby. And they're like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) What? Wow. You know, it's so funny. It's like come from away is like that annoying sibling for our daughter. It's just like, you know, she wants to play with us, but we have to play with come from away right now. So she's got to wait. And then like come from away, keeps us up all night. And she's like, why are you so tired? Um, What's, I, I, you know, every day is a new adventure. I don't know. I don't know what's worse. I don't know. We should, we should we, we'll have to all go for drinks and we can figure it out. I don't know. I, yeah.
2: I think, I think they're impossibly intertwined because, because, you know, wonderfully come from Way has become our life. And, uh, and, and, and so it's, uh. You know, there are arguments in both. And at the same time, we learn things, you, you know, like Chris said with the, with the, the way we would submit scenes that it feels like a, you know, it feels like a, a good tool in marriage. And we've learned things working on Comfort Way that we apply to our marriage. And we would learn things working on our marriage that we apply to, to Comfort Way. I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that, um, is that, uh, raising a, Child requires a village, and that raising a musical while raising a child requires an even bigger village. And so, people like Chris and our entire team have raised our daughter and have raised Comfort Away, and it is amazing to now send Comfort Away out into the world and uh, and and see it, you know, uh, grow up uh, in a hundred different countries on Apple TV Plus, you know, in ways that we never would have imagined the story of this show going.
0: David, Christopher, Irene, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's a busy day as we as we speak today. It is the opening day for the film on Apple TV Plus, So uh, I really feel honored that you uh, took the time to talk to us today about this uh, really just fantastic filmed adaptation of a uh, just a, a wonderful Broadway show. Congratulations to the three of you, and thank you again for coming on and talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Many thanks to David Hine, Irene Sankoff, and Christopher Ashley for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our friends over at Apple who facilitated this interview for us. You can watch Come From Away right now on Apple TV+, Plus, where it is streaming in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. As always, you can find links to the filmed Broadway musical via our show notes. And if you haven't already, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. We have a ton of exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks that you won't wanna miss. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in the show notes or by searching for dolby wherever you get your podcasts and while you're there please consider leaving us a rating or a review on the apple podcasts app it really helps raise awareness of our show and helps us continue to grow until then thanks again for joining us this has been sound and image lab the dolby institute podcast i'm your host glenn kaiser our producer and editor is michael coleman Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. Thanks for listening.